Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week in Jewish communities throughout the world, events in the Middle East are foremost in people's hearts and minds. Our prayers for peace go out to all those who are involved in these tragic events. And we, of course, regret the loss of life in all the parts of Israel, Palestine, and Gaza. But that Our intentionality um, and our thoughts will not deter us from continuing to read the Torah and find great meaning in the sacred texts of our people. This week, we begin the fourth book of the Torah, known in Hebrew as Bamidbar, which translates as wilderness or in the wilderness, but from the Greek translation, the name Numbers is associated with the book because the uh, story in this first five chapters, four chapters of um, Numbers begins with a census. God says to conduct a census of the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses counts 600,000 men of draftable age the tribe of Levi, numbering uh, 22,000 males, um, is counted separately. The Levites are to serve in the sanctuary. They replace the firstborn whose number they approximated. Since the firstborn were disqualified when they participated in the epic known as the Golden Calf, The 273 firstborn who lacked a Levite to replace them had to pay a five-shekel ransom to redeem themselves. When the people broke camp, as is explained in this week's parasha, the three Levite clans dismantled and transported the sanctuary, which had been described um, in the book of Exodus, and reassembled it at the center of the next encampment. They then erected their own tents around it, the Kohadites, who carried the sanctuary's vessels, the Ark and the Menorah, in their specially designed coverings on their shoulders, camped it to its south. The Gershonites, in charge of the tapestry and roofed coverings, to its west. And the families of Me'eri, who transported its walls and panels and pillars to the north. Before the sanctuary entranceway to its east were the tents of Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons. The rest of the parasha speaks about the 12 tribes and enumerates how many people were in each tribe and identifies that each tribe had a leader and its own flag with tribal colors and emblems, which are easily found on uh, many uh, artistic renderings of the signs and symbols of the 12 tribes. With me this morning to speak about this parasha and its connection to the upcoming Jewish holiday of Shavuot is Rabbi Jack Luxenberg, 
who is the rabbi emeritus of Temple Beth Ami in Rockville, Maryland. Rabbi Luxenberg served for 35 years in that congregation and prior to that served in Philadelphia um, as a rabbi. He received his doctoral degree in pastoral theology from Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Rabbi Luxembourg is active in his community with regard to social justice and interfaith activities. He's also very involved in uh, the reform movement's relationship with Israel as a founding member of ARTSA, the Association of Reform Zionists in America. Rabbi Luxembourg is profiled in Who's Who in Religion in the United States. Welcome again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Luxembourg. Uh, it's good to be with you again, Rabbi Garten, and I appreciate very much your opening words expressing concern for this uh, violence uh, in, in the Middle East and our prayers for peace for all the peoples involved uh, in all the areas, not only in the state of Israel, but also those who live in Gaza and those who live in the territories. Thank you. Um, I suppose that these are unusual circumstances. Um, and if you'd like to say a few more words about these um, uh, troubling times to our listeners, I'm sure that many of them would appreciate a, um, an informed view. Uh, I think an informed view requires uh, sharing information, the information, uh, the background to this conflict and its many, many factors uh, would take much more time than we have than allowed. Uh, I, I only encourage uh, our, our listeners uh, to become well-informed and uh, to recognize that uh, any country, including whether it be Canada, the United States, Israel, or any country, uh, has a legitimate right to defend itself, uh, and uh, rockets aimed discriminately, indiscriminately at civilian territories and civilian populations uh, would uh, prompt any country, any to retaliate and to protect their civilians. Uh, unfortunately, Israel is put in that position of self-defense. Uh, and uh, also, I think we have to admit, uh, responding in a way that attempts to deter further attacks. Uh, the violence is regrettable. The loss of life on all sides is regrettable. Uh, and frankly, from my point of view, um, the last uh, year, two, three years of uh, a relative quiet, uh, prove uh, that this outbreak was was unnecessary, uh, and we hope that soon it will be over. Uh, amen. Amen. But as you pointed out, I do, I do want to emphasize that your wisdom in suggesting to the listeners that they educate themselves about this very complicated issue. What we read in the newspaper may. Uh, attempt to explain the current situation, but without a background, uh, a complete background, an unbiased background, this without 
being able to contextualize um, this episode of violence will be extremely difficult. As I, was, uh, well, I think you made a very good point, and it's also uh, it's illustrative of our history that regardless of circumstances, we may uh, connected and immersed in our sacred texts and the, 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 the weekly rhythms uh, of Torah reading uh, ground us re, uh, regardless of the turmoil in our lives. Thank you. So this is a, a parasha that, of course, um, has no great memorable narrative. Um, it begins with this census. So let's speak about um, what is the purpose of this census? Uh, well, you know, uh, Rabbi, the, we, we've read three books of the Torah so far. We read the, the seminal stories in Genesis. We read the story of liberation in Exodus. In Leviticus, we read about the ritual organization, largely, and, you know, the Levites, Leviticus, about the setup of the tabernacle and the, and the uh, form of worship uh, that our ancestors established, as well as the purpose of that worship, as enshrined in uh, chapter 19 of Leviticus, Kedoshim, where it says, Kedoshim you that through ritual, we, we discover and we elevate the sanctity of our lives in an attempt to infuse it with the holiness that we associate with the divine. And so now we come to Bamidbar, and, and though we start with this census, Bamidbar now is, in fact, a more historical text as it recounts the sojourn of our ancestors uh, through the desert. And I think it's, uh, uh, as they say, they're nishta here, nishta there. They're not in Egypt, but they're not in the land of Israel yet. They're in this transitional uh, passage, which we know is going to last a total of 40 years. And during that time, uh, they're going to have experiences, as recounted in the book uh, of Numbers, uh, that begin to influence and shape the, their na the national identity. One aspect of that identity is a sense of shared destiny and fate. And what do you mean by well, that? Well, I mean that by that, by taking this census, it was not just to count the people. Uh, the commentaries, uh, and I'm relying now on the uh, aggregate of commentaries provided by Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Rabbi Hirsch points out that this taken in the, in the desert, in, you know, like in the no man's land, uh, this census is not about politics. It's not about who's eligible to vote. It's not a census about economics, about who's eligible to work. What's it, he asks, what is it about? And he focuses on the Hebrew word, uh, Edan. It says, Su'u et rosh kol adat b'nei Yisrael. It says, take accounting of, and here's the word Edan, the community of Israel, not the nation of Israel, not the workforce of Israel, but the community of Israel. As if to say that by being part of the count, that all the individuals so counted, they too matter. They count. They are part of a community. A community, which Rabbi Hirsch goes, uh, goes on to, to point out, is defined by where it we get a kind of hint. The Torah says that this takes place by Midbar, but by Midbar Sinai, in the, the wilderness of Sinai, linking... What has happened previously, the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai, to this period of wandering. 
as if to say it is during this, uh, in the crucible of the desert, our ancestors are learning how to incorporate the teachings of Torah into their lives, and in the process, becoming a community, a community defined by obligation, mitzvot, to fulfill the teachings of the Torah, but also shared responsibility, not only for their own selves, but more importantly as a community, the responsibility that each has for the other. Uh, you're surely familiar with, with, the, with the teaching, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zelazeh. All the pe people of Israel have a responsibility to care for one another, as, as well as the, the complementary teaching that we are obligated to care about the people around us, be they of our community or other communities with which we live together. The rabbis say, darke shalom, because that caring, that caring is in fact the path to peace. So you remind the listeners, some of whom will know this, but for others it may be new, that at, at Sinai we are all aware of the revelation and though the Torah doesn't call it the Ten Commandments, um, historically these um, utterances, these uh, words, these uh, phrases become known as the Ten Commandments. But following that, we have an entire uh, chapter which um, is known in the lexicon of the Torah as mishpatim, um, social norms that are uh, asked of the Israelite people um, in response to their covenantal commitment and as they uh, create community. Um, and some of those we would label as torts, and some of them we would label as um, civil law, but some of them, as you've um, alluded to, are certainly ethical obligations, as we find in Exodus when it tells us that um, you shall remember that you were a stranger in Egypt and you shall not oppress a stranger, the orphan, the widow, and the homeless. Um, and so you are um, helping our um, listeners understand that after that that the book of Leviticus is kind of an interruption to the Sinai experience. Mm -hmm. And that um, Bamidbar starts with this enumerating of the community and will continue um, to be kind of the crucible of community creation as we listen to stories that occur in uh, the book of Numbers. Um, which are about ritual and are about uh, ethical challenges um, in preparation for entering the land. Thank you. That's very helpful. But at the same time, as we are confronted with this notion of a da community, uh, the book of Numbers this year begins on the Shabbat um, 24 hours before this festival known as Shavuot. And so perhaps you could help our listeners understand how the Jewish community makes this transition from the census in the first chapter of Numbers and the enumeration of the tribes to um, what tradition tells us is a seminal moment 
in uh, Jewish theological history? Uh, I, I thank you for, for that question. I think that it, it is a, a, a happy coincidence, uh, the way the cycle of Torah reading and the festival cycle fall out uh, on this particular Jew, Jewish calendar year. You know, um, I, I think the world in which we live uh, needs sort of the message of this Torah portion, this, this, uh, what it means to be a community, a community of, uh, of social and spiritual obligations, not only to our respective faith traditions, but also to each other. And I know that in many places, this sense of community and mutual caring uh, is being put to the test. And I think this idea of, uh, of, of reminding that uh, the readers of Torah and the readers of scripture, regardless of our faith communities, uh, that in, in a true community, every person counts, every person matters, and we should be, do those things that not only uh, protect ourselves, but be are, are protective and caring and considerate of those around us. And I, I think that the, the confluence of this Torah portion at this time and in the experience that we're all sharing in the secular world uh, makes the celebration of Shavuot, which starts Sunday night, uh, all, all the more in, important. You know, we call it Shavuot, which means the Hebrew word means weeks, like seven day units, because we have counted a week of weeks, seven weeks between Passover, Pesach, and uh, Shavuot. And in fact, in the synagogue, we've been counting those 49 days one by one in, in happy, uh, but also reflective anticipation. As we so I would remind some of our non-Jewish listeners, of course, that the counting of days um, in the Jewish tradition known as the Omer from the um, second night of Passover to this holiday of Shavuot is paralleled by the counting from Easter to the Pentecost. Though they are not the same festival and have very different spiritual intentionalities, there is a parallelism in the notion of counting. Um, and of course, in many Christian traditions, this festival, which is known as Shavuot, as Rabbi has told us, meaning weeks, in many Christian traditions, this Jewish festival is in fact called Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Very, thank you for, for illuminating that, uh, that connection. What, what, I was, uh, what I was also thinking about is on this journey to Sinai, uh, which I say is joyous as well as reflective, uh, is the anticipation of revelation at Sinai, giving the giving of Torah, as you as you uh, uh, mentioned, not only the Aseret Dibrot, not only what we call the Ten Commandments or the Ten Utterances, which tradition says all, in fact, the Torah text itself says that all Israel heard, but also all the the, the accompanying 603 remaining mitzvot that are contained in the Torah, which uh, tradition says were uh, delivered to Moses as he spent 40 days and nights atop Mount Sinai. But, and so Shavuot is, in effect, celebrating the anniversary of the giving of Torah. And it is uh, a most profound uh, moment in the life of the synagogue. And I've always, and, and what I would like to point out to our listeners, interestingly enough, who are probably very 
familiar with the elaborate rituals and, and traditions that surround uh, the other two of the three major festivals around Sukkot, or the Feast Festival of Booths, or Pesach, or the Passover with its Seder, that Shavuot, interestingly enough, as important as it is, does not have a parallel set of uh, dramatic uh, rituals or customs uh, associated with the celebration. And that is, I think, because it is impossible to reenact this moment. At Passover around the Seder, we reenact the exodus from Egypt. At Sukkot, uh, dwelling in the booths that we create, the sukkah, we reenact the sense of har the harvest and the bounty of the earth as did our ancestors in anticipation of the coming winter. And we give gratitude uh, for the abundance uh, uh, that is ours that will see us through the dark, cold months until the spring harvest, which is associated with both Passover and then seven weeks later, the later spring harvest, which coincides with Shavuot. All our festivals have some agricultural association with the seasons of growth and, uh, and harvest in the land of Israel. But how do you, how do you, how do you create a ritual that recalls the giving of the Torah? Who is going to be the voice of God? How do we recreate Sinai? How do we recreate that moment? The closest we come in the synagogue is that on Shavuot, we do read Aseret Hatibro, we do read the Ten Commandments as if we were standing there, and in the synagogue we all stand. That's about as close as we can come. The rest is left to our imagination. No ritual construct, no elaborate custom, only that we try to imagine what it was like to stand there in that moment and, and receive Torah ourselves into our minds, in our hearts, and in our souls to carry us forward into the world. It's almost as if Shavuot, which is a festival most powerfully observed in the sanctuary, is a guided... Um, imagery trip mm -hmm. back to Revelation, um, that the liturgy and the imagery of the Midrashim, which connects us to um, Revelation and Sinai, without, littered, without um, behavioral reminders, calls upon us to, as you suggest, create our own uh, mindset, our own set of images. Um, and I'm wondering if I can ask you, in the Torah itself, Shavuot is mentioned without any liturgy and without any ritual. Um, do you think perhaps that the rabbis recognizing this um, superimposed this Matan Zman Toratenu, the time of the receiving of Torah onto Shavuot because it was a vessel looking for, uh, to hold something? Well, you know, you're asking me a, a chicken and the egg question. When I was, uh, I, I don't know how to, how to answer that. I, I think that the idea of commemorating the moment of revelation at Sinai year in and year out is, is in itself important, no less than commemorating the exodus from Egypt. Uh, which uh, set us on that 49-day march to Sinai. But consider this, and I'm going to bring us back to our Parsha for a moment. 
for Sukkot and for Pesach, for the Feast of Festival of Booths and for Passover, the primary observance is in the home. We build the sukkah, each of us, in our own homes, and we invite our friends and family to join us there. Our Seder is in our home, where we, once again, we gather as friends and family. But Shavuot requires us to come to the synagogue, as you pointed out. And it is in the synagogue that we're reminded, not in our individual homes, but this is a powerful reminder that we are an Eidah. We are a community, a community defined in part, not just because we are people who observe Passover or observe Sukkot or observe Shabbat, but because we are a people who stood together at Sinai and received Torah as a defining set of principles in our lives that requires us to care about our God, to care about our folk, to care about our faith, to care about the other people in the world, and uh, to fulfill our covenantal responsibilities uh, to the one who gave us Torah. You know, as you were speaking about this term Eda and about um, the three pilgrimage festivals, um, it struck me that as you identified with the sukkah, with the booths, we are invited to be joyous and to invite guests. And with uh, Passover, we are reminded that um, we are to invite all who are hungry to come and eat. And so each of those festivals has a universal clarion call to it. But Shavuot um, is a much more particularistic holiday. Perhaps um, using this notion of a da that appears in the Torah portion, that Shavuot is about the community of covenant and the community that has committed itself to the revelation at Sinai. And while that community is open to those who wish to join it, we don't necessarily reach out to them on this holiday and bring them into the Ada. Well, I, I, would, I, I think that's one way of looking at it. I would also, uh, I do believe that there is a, a very a particular, uh, with a small p and, and in the best sense, uh, re, uh, reinforcement of, of, of our faith and our, our responsibilities uh, on Shavuot. But it's exactly that reinforcement that encourages to do that outreach, which is expressed in the other festivals. It is from this Torah commitment, this particular commitment that defines us as an Eidah, as a community, as a people, as a faith, that inspires us to uh, not only to care for each other, but to care for those around us. Uh, and, and I think that's why the rabbis, I think, uh, were found it unnecessary, frankly, uh, to uh, to reinforce this message with any other type of elaborate ritual other than coming together as we do in the synagogue and to avoid trying to reenact this moment. And I'll tell you, Rabbi Garten, I think in part because if you think about how it might go about re being re reenacted, I think they were worried that it would tend towards idolatry. Remember, we're not supposed to make graven images. We're not supposed to make any representation of God. How do, how do you reenact Shavuot without making representations 
uh, of that which cannot be represented in, in the material world. So I, I think that this Shavuot is also a very spiritual holiday and, and one that calls to us uh, to, to recommit ourselves to Torah values and Torah living. I think that you have um, segued so nicely to closing our broadcast this morning that this is called Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. And you've reminded us that there are facts about our tradition, but the facts have a purpose. The purpose of the facts are to lead us into faith. Um, Rabbi Jack Luxemburg of Rockville, Maryland, I want to thank you for being our guest. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For myself, Rabbi Stephen Garten, I wish you shalom and have a good day.